This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Greetings out there in Michigan Radio Land at last the month of March, my favorite month. It's the start of spring. I know it doesn't look like spring, feel like spring out there right now, but remember the official start of spring is supposed to be, I think, March 21st, so that's only three weeks away, less than that. And uh, March can surprise us. Uh, it can, uh, you know, blow in like a lion and uh, limp out like a lamb. And hopefully that's what's going to happen this year. And then we get real spring in April and May. But this is at least a scintilla of hope. Now, in the state capitol this past week, there's been building anticipation about the first budget message from new governor Gretchen Whitmer coming up this coming Tuesday, March 5th. She's going to lay out her budget for the assembled state house and state Senate to start considering. Cause remember they have to actually enact the budget. They have to put the budget together and they present it to her. And then she decides, am I going to sign all of it? Uh, can I line item veto parts of it? I don't like, uh, are there going to be negotiations between her and the legislature dragging out for weeks or months into the summer we don't know that yet, but the start of the process really comes on Tuesday, March 5th, because up until now, it's all been sound and fury, bells and whistles, predictions, uh, speculation, controversy, but there's nothing really for the legislature and the governor to really start working on until Tuesday. Uh other things happened, though, this past week, and I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, Laura Cox, former state representative, was elected, as predicted on this program, a week ago uh, to be the new Michigan Republican Party chairman. That happened at a state Republican convention in Lansing last weekend at the Lansing Center. Uh, there was also action in the House and Senate. They can still enact laws or Let's put it this way. They can pass bills and send them to the governor, and they've been doing that. In fact, they did one this week in the House on civil asset forfeiture, and it was a huge bipartisan margin, 107 to 3 it passed. So that means uh, just about every Democrat and every Republican voted for it. We've talked about it on this program, and we're going to talk about it with one of our guests later in this program. Now, the Senate has already passed its own version of civil asset forfeiture. So each chamber has passed slightly different bills. So they're going to have to iron out the differences. What is civil asset forfeiture? I think, as everybody knows by now, who's really been following this issue, it is the seizure by law enforcement of private property of people who have been arrested for various misdeeds and then retained by law enforcement and in many instances, most instances, never given back to 
the property owners, even if the property owner isn't actually convicted of anything uh, or if the charges are dropped or whatever. So basically, uh, the feeling is this process as it exists now in law has been abused by law enforcement and they are seizing property, holding on to it, keeping it. And sometimes these people are either proven innocent or at least not convicted and they never get their property back. So there's an effort to repeal that. And I think there's a good chance if it gets to governor Whitmer's desk, she'll sign it. Other things that happened this week, um, a house committee, passed out a bill on pension tax repeal. Now, what is that? That is the tax on uh, pensions that was instituted by Governor Rick Snyder and the Michigan legislature back in the spring of 2011, which has been very unpopular. Governor Whitmer campaigned on repealing it. Her opponent, for that matter, Bill Schuette, campaigned on uh, repealing it. And now the legislature, which has many members who also do not like the pension tax, they have moved a bill out of House uh, Tax Policy Committee to another committee, Ways and Means, uh, to repeal it. Uh, There was a challenge to the repeal of the state's new prevailing wage law, I should say the new repeal of the prevailing wage law that was enacted by the legislature last year. It was challenged in court by labor unions uh, who wanted to keep it. Democrats, by and large, favor the prevailing wage. What is a prevailing wage? It means that for public construction projects in the state, uh, contracts have to be awarded to builders and contractors who pay their workers what is called the prevailing wage, which means the wage that prevails in that particular geographical area, wherever it is, that's been negotiated through collective bargaining by unionized contractors and the paying entity, whether it's a school district or a municipality or whatever. Many people have argued that means that, in fact, the wage that's being paid to these contractors is higher than it would probably be if the, let's say, school district did not have to pay the prevailing wage. They could just pay a wage commensurate with the low bidder. So there's been an effort mainly by business groups and Republicans to get rid of the prevailing wage because they claim it's going to save taxpayers money. And uh, the Republican-controlled legislature enacted it last year after it had been put before them by a petition drive Uh, And then that particular law passed by the legislature was challenged in court by the unions and Democrats. But this week, a court of claims judge, Cynthia Stevens, threw the lawsuit out, the challenge to the repeal of prevailing wage. So evidently it's going to continue on indefinitely unless or until maybe you get Uh, not only a governor, but both houses of the legislature controlled by Democrats, and they would probably try to reinstitute prevailing wage. Uh, Other things that happened this week uh, were also uh, noteworthy uh, efforts by the Democrats to maybe make state senators run for 
uh, re-election or election in 2020, that's next year, even though they're supposed to have four-year terms, if it can be proved that they have been serving in gerrymandered districts. That's also in federal court. We'll have to see what happens on that. Um, I'm just going to mention you don't have to miss a minute of this program. Uh, You can tell your friends, those you care about, those you're a little worried about, uh, all they have to do is log into theballengerreport.com, and you'll see all the programs listed there. You can just hit the one you want, click on it. Uh, it will come up live. All the programs for the last eight months have been archived. Uh, we also have archived on theballengerreport.com the Friday morning podcast, which is a weekly podcast that I and Dennis Denno put on every week discussing current events in Michigan with a focus on Michigan politics and history. It's available, as I said, at theballengerreport.com and on iTunes, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Uh, You can get all those programs there. There are also articles on theballengerreport.com website that you can read. So three different things, articles, podcasts, radio programs, all at TheBallingerReport.com. We're going to be back in just a minute with our first guest, Senator Peter Lucido, and he's always interesting. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with our special guest. He is State Senator Peter Lucido. He served two terms in the State House. He is a Republican from Shelby Township in Macomb County. Senator Lucido, welcome to The Political Insider. How you doing, Bill? And I'm going to welcome all the listeners because I love to listen to you and Hear the listeners' voices. So let's get it rolling. I think they're more interested in listening to you than me. But (laughs) let me start out by just asking you about a press conference I think you had about 10 days ago with uh, State Senator Sylvia Santana, a Democrat from Detroit, about raise the age, uh, raising the age of legal adulthood within the courts, uh, within the state's court system, establishing 17-year-olds as minors in most instances. Could you explain what this is all about and what, what's going on and what is the likelihood you can get it passed? Well, let me tell you what's going on. Number one, we're one of four states in the union that still charges 17-year-olds as adults. So 46 states either got this right or we've got it wrong. Take your pick. As a result, these four states feel that it's necessary to continue to charge a 17-year-old as an adult, although the 17-year-old, number one, can't vote until they're 18. Number two, they can't serve on a jury. Number three, they can't even uh, enlist in the military. I can go on and on and on. They can't even enter into a legal binding contract. So when you charge a 17-year-old as an adult, You are going against the face of what the family court, which was set up about a decade ago, that said, 
a child is entitled to child support until the child turns 18, graduates from high school but not beyond 19 and a half, which means they're still treating in the family court, which is a division of where children are taken care of, 18. They consider them to be adults at that point. Now, we've got a diversion here of why we are charging why we are charging 17-year-olds with crimes. If you want to stop the recidivism rate, which means the repeat offending rate, you better look at the services that are available for children versus adults. There is no services when you're sitting in prison that are readily available, but there's a ton of services to give to children in the juvenile system to rehabilitate and make them very sensitive to maybe their actions as well as get them to a point where they are sorry for their wrong and will make them productive members of society. There is an overwhelming, drastic charge to get this done for this reason. A child's brain doesn't fully develop until their 25th birthday, some as much as 28. So why are we doing this? I think it's just archaic, it's out of control, and we've just been doing it over and over again. And anybody in the judicial system is going to say we should rehabilitate in the onset rather than put a guppy in a shark tank, putting a child at 17 in prison with a bunch of adults. Now, all that being said, we can still waive the child, and we left the prosecution exclusive authority to bring its waiver so you can charge a 12, a 14, a 16, whatever. You can charge an 8-year-old with an adult crime, and the judge approves of it. So we didn't take away that right. So those listeners should hear they still have the ability to charge a very heinous crime committed by a juvenile as an adult. It's just routinely don't be charging 17-year-olds over and over again because you can. What are chances for passage? I think real good this term, and I'll tell you why. We got it out of the House when I served in the House. And now we got those same House members in the Senate. So they've, they've, they've elevated themselves into the Senate. There's an overwhelming majority that are standing behind this. It's a bipartisan package, which means it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you sit on. It does matter, though, the people that you serve. And those are the families of those youths. Yeah, you have really big responsibilities in the Senate. You're chairman of judiciary committee you're also chairman of a new committee called advice and consent and you're doing something that hasn't been done for a long time in the senate uh consistently you're having uh, nominees of governor whitmer come in and uh be fly specked so to speak checked out asked questions by members of the advice and consent committee what have you seen so far well number one this is a constitutionally uh, protected committee, every governor that goes into office has his or her prerogative of who they want as their directors. And those directors are actually setting, uh, setting into motion things that need to be uh, delivered to the taxpayers of the state, which is services and benefits, that which their tax dollars are paying. Give you, for instance, DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services, uh, she put a, a gentleman uh, in there, uh, Mr. Gordon, and Mr. Gordon, um, you know, he, he, never, he never really lived in the state. So 
what we do is we vet out those individuals because that, that DHHS delivers health and human services to the most vulnerable, the most needy, children, uh, adults. This is a $26 billion budget that this man is controlling. So these questions that are asked are, are you uniquely qualified to handle this position? Well, you're not going to find a, a person that has handled this kind of budget uh, right off the streets. But at the same time, do we have the expertise, the knowledge, the skill? Do we know what Michigan's all about? Do we have your attention as to mental health here in the state? So this committee that I chair is a necessary committee to make sure that if this person or people that are put in these directorships that are running these departments, and in this case a $26 billion department, are not uniquely qualified, don't have the skill set nor the capacity to understand Michigan, I don't think they should be in that position, and I don't want them there because it's going to be counterproductive for the taxpayers, and it may even infringe upon hurtfulness to those individuals that need those services. Senator Peter Lucido, um, we are talking about advice and consent committee. What about Department of Natural Resources? Yeah, same thing. I mean, we're talking about, you know, an economic driver here with resources that we have, the hunting, the fishing, the, you know, the mining, all these, you know, industries that we, you know, look to and put a spotlight on to go ahead and, and bring in dollars and feed families. And we don't want people that are going to have a massive amount of rules and regulations to, you know, try to inhibit somebody from going into these businesses and or continuing these businesses in the state. We also have the Department of Environmental Quality. And, Bill, you, you see, Lisa Clark, her name is, she was put in there, and, and, and we've expanded that department to include energy and Great Lakes. I mean, now we've got an expansion on that department, uh, and we just finished up her hearing, and uh, we, we are looking at is, you know, this department too big now? Is it going to deliver the services that it needs to? Does it have too many... Uh, you know, duties and responsibilities. Are you going to now compete with the Great Lakes, the you know, the, the, the fresh water versus energy that's flowing through it through pipeline number five? I mean, these are things that are going to conflict with one another. And are they able to balance the policy of the state and the needs of society? These are good questions that this committee has been taken on and challenged with. Okay, we're going to come back with Senator Peter Lucido. So much more to talk about in just a minute. We got to take a short break. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned with our special guest. He is State Senator Peter Lucido, Republican of Shelby Township in Macomb County, chairman of several key committees in the state Senate, um, also the sponsor back when he was in the House of civil asset forfeiture legislation, which he got passed through the House and sent over to the Senate in the last session of the legislature, uh, the 99th legislature last year, and then it sat in the Senate. And now he's in the Senate himself, and he's gotten uh, civil asset forfeiture out of the Senate and sent to the House. But 
In the meantime, just this week, on a vote of uh, big 107 to 3, bipartisan, they passed their own version of civil asset forfeiture, sent it um, to uh, the, the Senate. So each chamber, as I understand it, you can correct me, Senator, have passed their own version. And I'm wondering if this is going to become another political football or whether you're going to be able to get this done. What can you tell us? We're going to get it done this time, Bill. And, and you know, rightfully so. This has been long overdue. It's been my first and only initiative that I put the first bill in each and every term that I served in the House. It was uh, my number ones all the time because I saw after practicing over 30 years there was an injustice. I mean, due process meant due process meant due process when I went to law school, and it should be today. You don't take away people's rights by taking their property and selling it off before you've had your day in court. This was something optically wrong. It infringed upon people who were poor. They didn't have access to justice. You've taken people's property now and made a presumption as a police officer or law enforcement that, you know, they did something wrong right out of the gate without any committal of a detached, neutral person, such as a judge who's elected by the people or jurors that are independent. It just doesn't look right. And on top of it, they were stuffing their budgets with millions of dollars. And most of these individuals, it was not the big, big dollar amounts. It was it was smaller amounts, less than, you know, $5,000, and it starts adding up. In 2016, it was $18.3 million. I'll repeat that, $18.3 million that was taken in from law enforcement on civil asset forfeiture for the state. And uh, 2017, it was about 13.5. We need to stop this. And the reason why is if the person is profiting from criminal activity, then I have no use for that person, and they should lose everything because criminals are criminals, and profiting from that should not be allowed. However, until you've made the determination that they're actually guilty of something, don't they have a vested property right that says innocent until proven guilty? And that's been the hallmark of our justice system. I've been fighting this battle through and through. I've worked with all the stakeholders, which was law enforcement, prosecutors. I said there is no easy way except this. We've moved up the standard of proof, which is from preponderance to clear and convincing. We've taken away the bond requirement. So we've chipped away at everything. But the last and the, and the real essence of civil asset forfeiture is don't sell my stuff unless and until you've charged me, let alone found me guilty. They were taking stuff before anybody was even charged. And sometimes they never were charged and they forfeited their property. That is wrong. Until there's been a criminal conviction is the bill that I have. You should not be entitled to sell my property. Two questions. Uh, doesn't a lot of this activity involve drugs? And secondly, what is the difference, really, between the House and Senate versions? And can those differences be resolved? So under the Public Health Code, to answer your question about drugs, yes, it involves drugs, but it also involves other, other outside things than drugs. So the public health code is the one I want to modify because that's where the mainstay of the property. There's also, if there is a nuisance and everything else, I don't want to get into that. I'll tell you why. There's some value about forfeiting property when somebody's committing nuisance, but we don't have time for that today to discuss that topic. And the second thing is the diversion of the two bills. What is the diversity between the two bills? Mainly they're the same. They really are. It's the introduced version that I have that the House went ahead and 
had as their number one bill, 4001 it's called. 4002, though, says a little bit different, and that's a bipartisan package again in the House. But for the main purpose of today's discussion, they're mainly the same. The threshold is $50,000 or more, and I looked at that from other states that are around the country that have a forfeiture in place that says nobody should profit. I can tell you this, Bill, after 30 years of going to court, some of the things that were taken out of houses and or forfeited were children's toys and property, dartboards, piggy banks with $2.56 in it. It's enough. It's time to stop it, and it's time to get back to um, what's called uh, common sense reform. Let's talk about pension tax repeal. Uh, This week, as you know, the House uh, reported out of committee uh, by a big vote, 14 to 1, I think it was, very bipartisan, a bill to repeal the so-called pension tax that has been in effect since 2011. It's been a very unpopular tax. And uh, this particular bill in the House has been sent to another House committee because they've got a two-tier House committee system now instituted for the first time. So it's not out on the House floor yet. I know the Senate also has legislation you're considering on this. And the estimate this week was that if you repeal the entire pension taxes as exist right now in fiscal year 2020, it would cost the state $384 million. In the following fiscal year 2021, it would cost $349 million. So let me ask you, what is the pension tax? Maybe just define it for our listeners better than I have and tell me what's going on there. Yeah, so there's different types of pensions that individuals have. They have 401K, they have 527s, they have uh, conventional pensions. And as a result of uh, the tax, it, it, it is taxed uh, on the funds that are coming to the individuals that are already in retirement or in pay status. I want to make sure that everybody knows that should have never been done. Actually, when you go to a financial planner and you sit there and you talk to a financial planner and say, can I retire? Yes, you can. Based on your check and based upon your other investments, you have ability to have so much a month that you'll need to live on. They didn't see the pension tax coming, nor could they even reasonably infer that this was going to happen. When it did, it brought less dollars to the individuals that were already in retirement and pay status. And as a result, it kind of hurt them. So now... When this governor, our governor, went ahead and made the statement, I want to repeal the pension tax. I want to get this done for those individuals. I want to fix the damn roads. I want to go in and give free college tuition for community colleges. All these are sounding really good, but when you don't have any money to backfill to pay for the services that we really need, I don't know how this is going to get done. And when you make those statements and take it away, you've got to cut somewhere else. When you let air out of a balloon, Somewhere, somebody's got to pump air in at another place to keep the balloon floating. And I just don't see it. And I hope that that discussion, because I know from Treasury, uh, our former Senator Steve Bita was over there saying, hey, we can have this discussion. Well, these guys are taking it on in the House saying, discussion, nothing. We're voting this out. This is what our governor said. Let's get it done. (laughs) I got to tell you, it's like a teeter-totter. Somebody's going up and somebody's going down. In this case, it's money. Money's going up. Nope, it's actually all coming down. (laughs) Well, do you think maybe uh, Governor Whitmer is going to come out on Tuesday with her budget and say, you know what, 
uh, I'm for pension tax repeal, but maybe we got to phase it out a little bit. Maybe we well, can't do it all at once. And maybe the House and Senate will say, uh-uh, no, you promised to get rid of it. We want to get rid of it in one fell swoop all at once, and we're going to pass a bill and send it to you. What if she then says, well, I got to veto this, then what? I think then she's got to take the podium and she's got to come clean as to what the heck she meant when she was trying to get elected here and actually did. She made, <laughs> she made, you know, she made very clear decisions about what she was saying. I will, not I won't, I will phase out the pension tax. Phase out? I never heard the word phase. I, I'll get rid of it. I'll eliminate it. <laughs> Listen, I'd love to keep talking. We could keep going for hours here, but unfortunately we're out of time. But I want to thank you, State Senator Peter Lucido from Shelby Township in Macomb County. Thank you, Senator. You're welcome, Bill. It's great to talk to you always. And have a great week for your listeners. Absolutely. We'll do it again. Thank you. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We are back with one more guest who is a political activist of some standing over time. John Love, L-A-U-V-E, has uh, been uh, very outspoken about Michigan's system of taxation. By the way, he uh, is a rocket scientist, just like former state Senator Patrick Kolbeck. Uh, He majored in aerospace engineering, I believe, at the University of Michigan. Uh, John Love, welcome to the Political Insider. Now let's blast off here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, G- Governor Gretchen Whitmer is going to give her first budget message this coming well, Tuesday. She's uh, there's a lot of money out there that is available for important projects, and there's a lot of money that has been wasted on stupid projects and failed to reform. And here's the uh, the meat of the issue. Uh, just to give you a few examples. Yeah. Go to it. Roads, let's fix them. Well, uh, Michigan has the <laughs> highest weight limits on trucks in the United States, four, three times the federal limit. Uh, somehow our roads are so great that we can withstand the pounding of these overweight mammoth trucks crushing the roads. And they have a scam that says, oh, we have a lot of tires and the ground pressure is less. Well, a tank has less ground pressure than it can go over muddy fields. But when it comes to the road, when the weight gets on the road, it crushes the road. This is not rocket science. Right. And where's the money gone? Instead of fixing the roads, they redo intersections, bike paths, all kinds of diversions of the money. We don't need any new road projects. We need to fix the existing roads. And that money has been diverted over the years, and it continues to be on little pet projects. Absolutely. Here's the situation on taxes. There have been two uh, lobbies that are most powerful in Michigan that have frozen their taxes for 60 years at a fixed amount. The beer lobby, 1.9 cents a bottle for 60 years. That, that was real money 60 years ago. Now <laughs> people don't even pick up the pennies. <laughs> <laughs> the trailer, so 
if it was raised to ten cents a bottle, they'd have a hundred and thirty million dollars more money for something like maybe schools. Right. We don't need to have money for schools because <laughs> uh, we have eight hundred school districts mismanaging the whole system. The school systems in Michigan are in the lower third of the United States, but we have some of the highest paid uh, expenses for schools because it's all wasted. It's wasted. And then on top of that, what do they do? They come along and give Illich $800 million for his hockey rink from the school aid fund. Right. Oh, we don't need any schools. we got to have a hockey rink that pays no taxes. <laughs> It, it's well. Here's the other one: trailer homes. They pay thirty-six dollars a year on their home for property taxes. Wow! It's a fixed amount. Has, it isn't even uh, hasn't that been frozen inflation too? for sixty years? Yeah. Uh, what's the reason for that? Oh well, let's tax the pensioners because we need money. No, we need to have the trailer park owners pay up because what has happened in Michigan is the only trailer park commission in the United States. And guess who the members are? Trailer park owners. <laughs> they set the rules. <laughs> well, when it comes time for election, just call them up and they'll write some money because they own the legislature. And they never talk about these two uh, operations. It's never in the papers. It's never in there somehow, but it's on the value report. Well, that's true. I wonder why it, these two particular taxes have not gotten the attention you'd think they would. Well, because the uh, fake newspapers are more concerned with entertainment than they are with what is taking place. And nobody talks to them. I, I've talked to them. Well, well, we got bigger stories to deal with, like uh, some bus ran off the road. It, they don't cover the the essence of what's necessary for us to succeed. What about and, the and move ahead. What about the Detroit Land Bank? Oh gosh, <laughs> that, <laughs> uh, that's another. It isn't the Land Bank. <laughs> it's the land dump. Oh, explain, they, explain, they, uh, explain. Uh, here's the deal on the Land Bank. Uh, it's so outrageous. Uh, they have. 94,000 properties in their inventory. And on top of that, 28,000 are structures on those properties. And what do they do? They sell 36 properties a week. Uh, they're not making much progress on that thing at all. That's 1,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, I know it. It's unbelievable. Uh, so you got 28,000 properties. They should give them all away tomorrow and they'd be further ahead. Uh, they, uh, it's run by a bunch of amateurs that don't even understand what it's like. They've destroyed 17,000 demo uh, properties in the city, and that's just a drop in the bucket over the years. Right. And they've taken this 11,000. Now they have a, uh, one of the many scandals where the people were uh, tearing down the house and putting all the rubble in the basement and covering it up. Wow. But the land bank is a cancer on the city. They don't put for sale signs up on the properties. All they'd have to do is say to the neighbors, hey, take this house and do something with it, and they'd have, those people would have an interest, and they'd make sure something happened. They don't even do that. They do nothing. 
They have uh, the lieutenant governor owns one house that is in violation, and they've never done anything about that. But we're working night and day on this uh, mess. It's it's awful. Yeah, but, we... but there's a couple of there's a couple of important things that have been missed, and that's the jobs situation. That is so egregious. China and Mexico. Mexico's a failed state, but all these companies have moved down there. They said, well, we can't move back. We already tore down all the factories we had in the United States and built these new ones in Mexico. We don't want to go back uh, because down here we just pay bribes and everything works okay. Up in the United States, they have to pay taxes. So that's why Michigan lost all these jobs. Michigan's population is the same as it was when Blanchard was governor. Yeah, that's... exactly the same. Yeah. So there's all this growth and jobs and comeback and all that. It's all smokescreen. China and Mexico have taken the jobs, and they have uh, paid everybody off. Uh, Clinton's campaign, uh, the first Clinton, the federal the federal government and was wanted to investigate how China which made campaign contributions to Clinton's campaign, was inter- interfering with the election. You know what happened to that investigation? <laughs> they wanted to have a special prosecutor, but Janet Reno said, no, we're not going to investigate the president. <laughs> so, And she sold all this uranium to Russia, but Russia's a big interfering in the election group. Uh, this thing is, it's so mind-boggling to see what the real news is as opposed to what we really end up getting. And it just is non-stop. Uh, it's so sad because our schools need the help. Bottom third of the United States. Trucks out there crushing the roads. And we're doing nothing. Land bank. China, it's not the second largest economy in the world. It's third behind the European Union. That's the kind of misinformation that's presented. And they don't own our national debt at all. Japan actually owns the same amount of our national debt as China does. Oh, really? How could that be? Well, because nobody tells anybody what's really going on. And I appreciate you being able to yeah, do you think spread it's, a little of this you, dirt around. Do you think it's chicanery that it's not mentioned or just incompetence on the part of the news media? It's it's shallowness. Uh, they get a press release, and the actual the description of China's uh, obligation is on a certain day of the month, they are the largest single foreign holder of the debt. They only own 10% of the foreign-held debt, so now it gets distorted because they leave off the qualifiers so that uh, Mrs. Clinton, Secretary of State, says, well, they're our banker. No, Social Security Trust Fund and the Federal Defense uh, Pension Funds, those are the holders of the debt. They don't talk about it. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Listen, uh, fascinating the stuff you've come up with, and there's absolutely no question you're right about so much of what you've just covered. I mean, particularly the beer tax and the trailer park tax here in Michigan is something uh, somebody should uh, take a look at real quick. I want to thank you, John Laub. I think you uh, you live in Holly, right? Northern Oakland County? Yes, I'm out here and uh, I've escaped from Detroit. <laughs>
Well, thank you very much, John Love, political activist. Uh, Thanks for having this show uh, and and trying to expose some of these aspects. My pleasure. We'll have you back at some point. Thank you so much.